Welcome to the listener's commentary on the New Testament. Your guide is pastor and theologian Dr. John Whitaker, and the heart behind these studies is to help you better understand the text of Scripture so you can more fully live it out. It's all about helping you learn and live the Bible. Here is the book of 1 Corinthians. All right, I want to welcome you to the listener's commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians. My name is John Whitaker, and the listener's commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching project made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do that by going to listenerscommentary.com clicking the give button and giving a one-time or setting up a monthly recurring donation right there. Or you can go to the study hub, sign up for the study hub and get access to a, a host of other resources inside the study hub and support the ministry through the study hub as well. Both um, are excellent ways to help this ministry continue to grow and expand. In this recording, we're going to look at the backstory to the letter to the first Corinthians. To tell it as a story would go something like this. It's the mid-50s AD, and there's a small struggling church in the city of Corinth. The church is just a few years old. Paul had started it in the year 51. They're spiritually immature, but they think they're way more spiritual and way more mature than they actually are. And they are being shaped way more by the values of the city around them than by the kingdom of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, their father in the faith, he's in Ephesus, just across the Aegean Sea from them. And he's heard from some of Chloe's people about some of the problems in the church, especially the factionalism and the divisions in the church. He's also received a letter from the church in Corinth asking him some questions about some of the issues that's causing them some of problems. And there are a ton of problems. Rivalry, arrogance, divisions, sexual immorality, lawsuits, confusion about sexuality and marriage. There's idolatry and Christian freedom disorder and self-serving in worship. There's confusion about spiritual gifts. And there's even some people who are denying the resurrection. It's pretty much a mess. And Paul's already written one letter to them dealing with a problem or two, and that letter was misunderstood. So now, here in the mid-50s, Paul takes up the pen to write another letter, the letter we call 1 Corinthians, and he intends to address their problems, not just for their benefit, but as he notes at the outset of the letter, also for the benefit of all churches. That's the backstory in brief to the letter of 1 Corinthians. Now, let's talk about some of the details that lie behind that that help us really flesh out what's going on in the letter. The first thing to talk about is the city of Corinth itself. Corinth was one of the largest cities in the first century Roman world. It was one of the top five cities of the empire. And because of its history and its current nature, that city had some unique opportunities for upward mobility and growth. And that actually led to some of the problems that are playing out in the church. Uh, the city of Corinth sat about 50 miles away from Athens. Athens is fairly well known. Well, Corinth was about 50 miles away from it on a little strip of land, an isthmus in Greece. And that location was actually very significant for why it had grown to be such a significant city. Uh, it was actually the uh, imperial 
capital of the province of Achaia. Achaia is the Roman name for what we call Greece. And Corinth was the imperial capital for that province. And the way it arrived at its status and its importance was this. The city, the old city of Corinth, the Greek city, had been destroyed by Rome in the year 146 B.C., But then it had been rebuilt by Julius Caesar in about 44 BC and established as a Roman colony. So here it is in Greece, but it's being built as a Roman colony on a very Roman model. In fact, the street system and all of that followed a very Roman pattern. Um, And Julius Caesar settled veterans there. He settled some Roman freedmen there. And so the city had a very Roman flavor. Not only that, because it had been destroyed and laid in ruins for a hundred years before it was rebuilt by Rome, there was no remaining aristocracy. And what that led to was uh, an opportunity for uh, business growth and social mobility upward up the social ladder. And so rather than having an established aristocracy and established wealthy landowners, when it was rebuilt, there was this opportunity for new growth and new business ventures and new landowners. And that was somewhat unique in the Greco-Roman world. And what that led to then was, as this city grew, it led to a lot of competition and a lot of rivalry and a lot of uh, competition for growing your honor and your status in the city by wealth and power and business and politics and all of that. And so there's this unique opportunity of a power vacuum and an honor vacuum when Corinth is rebuilt that leads to a lot more opportunities to kind of make your own way in the city of Corinth. And because of where it was located geographically on that isthmus, um, it actually grew quite rapidly. And the reason for that was because it really wasn't safe to uh, sail around the southern tip of Greece. In fact, there was a, a proverb of the time that said, let him who thinks of sailing around Cape Malaya make his own will. Like if you're going to try to sail around the southern tip of Greece, you might as well make your will and prepare to die because the currents were so unpredictable, the winds were unpredictable, and it was a really dangerous trip. And so what would happen would be um, they would stop, say if they were sailing from west to east, they would sail into the western port of Corinth, a small little city on the western side on that strip of land, and they would unload their goods and cart them across land. And then they would put in on the eastern side on another ship and reload their goods and then sail on to the east. It was, even though that took a lot of work and a lot of time, it was safer and better to do that than to try to sail around the southern tip of Greece. Well, what that meant was you had a uh, sailors and travelers and goods and resources constantly being moved from east to west and west to east through the city of Corinth. And so people kept moving there. And as a result, the city became a a hub for trade and travel. And it grew uh, because of that. And that's why it became one of the top four or five cities in the Roman Empire. Now, we don't know exactly how large it was in the first century. By ancient standards, it was only 100 years old. It was a fairly new city in the first century. Uh, But by the second century, according to um, John McRae's Archaeology and the New Testament book, uh, he says that at 
in the second century, we can document about uh, 250, 300,000 citizens of the city and over 400,000 slaves. And so a city of over a half a million people uh, approaching maybe three quarters of a million people in the second century. Well, it wasn't that big in the first century, but it still was large and growing and an important city in the Roman Empire. Not only that, but as is common in trade and travel cities, oftentimes uh, Corinth was a rather debauched city. It was a rather immoral city. In fact, um, it had a reputation for that, even in the greater Roman Empire. Uh, to play the Corinthian in a Roman play or a Greek play uh, meant to be immoral. Like, they were always drunk in the play. They were always immoral in the play. Now, that's a stereotype and it's a generalization, but it gives you a sense of what the view of the city of Corinth was by the rest of the uh, Greece and the rest of the Roman Empire. Um, that phrase, to play the Corinthian, meant to live an immoral life. And so the city of Corinth was this large, growing, important uh, trade center, this large and important city in the empire. And it was also uh, had a reputation for immorality and debauchery and all sorts of things like that. Well, it's to hear Corinth, this large and impressive and growing and immoral city, that the apostle Paul arrives early on in the 50s AD, probably maybe 50 itself, late 50, early 51, the Apostle Paul shows up on his mission to make disciples. And you can read the story of the founding of the church at Corinth in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 18. And if you want all the details on that, you can listen to the listener's commentary on Acts 18 uh, for those details. But as I just noted, Paul arrives there around 50 or 51. We know this pretty solidly because uh, there's this event that takes place while Paul is there where he's brought before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of the proconsul Gallio. And we know exactly when Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia and stationed in uh, Corinth because we have an inscription that dates it for us, that he was proconsul from July of 51 through June of 52. And after about a year, Gallio was like, I don't like living in Corinth, even, even though this is a high position. It's not worth it for me to stay here in the city of Corinth. Don't like it here. Boom, he turned, turned in his papers and ceased being proconsul. And so Paul was brought before Gallio sometime between July of 51 and June of 52. My guess is probably, you know, like the fall of 51, September, October, maybe early on in Gallio's proconsulship. Don't know for sure, but that's roughly when it is. And so that gives us a pretty fixed date for when Paul was there. And so Paul arrives in, in Corinth um, in the year 50 or 51, and he spends 18 months there working hard to get the, the church well established. And when he first came to Corinth, he stayed at and worked with a couple named Aquila and Priscilla because they were of the same trade that Paul was. And so he worked in their leather shop and their tent shop, working for his own room and board. And that was a regular practice for Paul. When he would show up to a new city, he would work for his own room and board, or he would live off offerings from churches that he'd started prior to that. But he, he worked really hard not to take money 
from a new church when he was first planting that church. And the reason for that was because he didn't want to be accused of taking their money and running because he never knew how long he'd be in town. And he wanted to provide an example of the importance of hard work and working for your own room and board. The problem was, is that manual labor was looked down on in the Roman world. And it lessened your honor and your status. So this got, actually got Paul into some trouble with some of the Corinthians. They became believers, but then they started to kind of look down on Paul because he was this guy who worked with his hands. And why wouldn't he just accept some patronage from some wealthy person as everyone else did? And there's reasons why Paul wouldn't do that. And so uh, Paul didn't do that. He worked for his own room and board, and he did that here in Corinth with Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla, at least for a time. And then eventually, Timothy and Silas come down from Macedonia. They brought an offering from the churches in Macedonia, and so Paul then could give himself a more full time to preaching and teaching and ministry. And so he settled in Corinth there for a year and a half. And as I noted, during that year and a half, conflict erupted between him and some of the Jews in town, and the Jews drug Paul before uh, Gallio, the proconsul, which was right in downtown Corinth and right in the center of town. Once again, more shame and more dishonor. All of that's important for um, some of the things that play out in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Gallio wanted nothing to do with the Jews' case against Paul, so he tossed the case out of court. And so that's sort of what Acts 18 tells us about uh, the founding of the church in Corinth. Well, by the time we get to this letter of 1 Corinthians, it's been several years since those early days in the city itself. And so we're probably 54, 55, maybe as late as 56-ish, but probably more like 54, 55, when the letter of 1 Corinthians is written. And the Apostle Paul, when he writes 1 Corinthians, is in the city of Ephesus during what we call his third missionary journey. Again, you can read about that in Acts chapter 19. And if you want to get all the details on that, you can listen to the listener's commentary on Acts 19 there as well. So where's Paul when he writes 1 Corinthians? Well, he's in Ephesus, just across the Aegean Sea from the city of Corinth. And interestingly enough, while he's in Ephesus, he's actually... Uh, had and will continue to have quite a bit of contact with the, the Corinthians and the church at Corinth. Since Ephesus is just across the sea, it, it made for easy communication. And somehow, Paul had received some information at some point about an immoral church member there in the city of Corinth. And Paul wrote a letter before 1 Corinthians. And so 1 Corinthians is really the second letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians, interestingly enough. Um, and Paul had written a letter addressing the problem of this immoral church member to the church at Corinth. And that letter was somehow misunderstood. Then while Paul is in Ephesus, he gets word, he says in uh, chapter 1, verse 11 of the book of 1 Corinthians, he gets word from Chloe's people um, as to some of the problems going on in the church. Now, we don't know exactly who's Chloe's people are. Uh, it seems most likely to me 
that Chloe's people are from the church in Corinth who have come to Ephesus. Maybe they've come to Ephesus on business. Ephesus was another large and important trade city. Corinth is a large city. They may have been sent from Chloe. Their employees or servants of Chloe that perhaps have been sent to Ephesus on business. That's what seems most likely to me. While they're there, they meet with Paul and the church, and they share news about what's going on in the church at Corinth. Not only that, but Paul also had received a letter from the Corinthians uh, asking him several questions. He mentions that letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. So Paul's had quite a bit of contact with the church at Corinth while he's in Ephesus, dealing with this problem of an immoral brother, hearing about some divisions and factionalism, some other problems from closed people, getting a letter from the Corinthians where they had some confusion about uh, sexuality and marriage and about meat offered to idols and about spiritual gifts. And they ask him some questions about that. And, and, so 1 Corinthians is going to deal with all this stuff that Paul is learning about the church at Corinth. And what's going on in Corinth are just problems, lots of problems. Um, there's divisions in the church along the lines of various leaders. People are kind of gathering into groups and saying, I prefer Apollos. Well, I prefer Paul. Well, I prefer Cephas. And we don't know exactly what all those lines are and how that all played out, but it really seems to have to do with a matter of status and honor around the idea of who really knows what's going on, who's really wise and who's really spiritual. And Apollos, we know from uh, things that are said in the Corinthian correspondence, as well as from uh, Acts, that Apollos was a powerful speaker. Well, that was super impressive to the Corinthians. And so some identified with him because this guy really knew how to, to impress an audience and could really speak and really lay out the truth and all that. He's really wise and spiritual. We're of Apollos. And other people identified with Paul. And so now you get divisions in the church. That's part of the problem. They had issues related to sexuality and marriage. And uh, we already mentioned there's this problem with this immoral brother that Paul addressed in a previous letter. And so now Paul's got to clarify some things about that. And there's other problems related to sexual immorality. They got questions about marriage and is it is it good just to avoid marriage? And so they got they're confused about that. There's questions about meat offered to idols and idol temples and idol banquets. And that's causing some friction and division in the church too, because some are like, we can do whatever we want, and just all sorts of tension there. Uh, there's even some questions about corporate worship and what proper attire in worship. If you're going to uh, share a message or you're going to offer a prayer in worship, what should you wear and what should you not wear? There's questions about that. And Lord, questions about communion and spiritual gifts. There's even confusion among some about resurrection from the dead, saying that uh, the resurrection's already happened or there is no resurrection from the dead. All of this is being influenced by some of the values of the city of Corinth. And so here we have this church that Paul spent 18 months with working so hard to get established in this big and important city because he recognized the opportunity for the gospel there if it gets established there. And yet there's just problems after problems and confusion after confusion. And it all seems to uh, come about because the church at Corinth is being influenced in some very powerful ways by the values of the city of Corinth. Values like honor and shame. 
Values like uh, the patron-client system. Values about sexuality and marriage that come from the culture and not from Christ. And so uh, the city is influencing the church more than the church holding up an alternative kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. So let, let me just talk briefly and quickly about some of these things, honor and shame, patron-client system, and sexuality and marriage, real briefly, because we need to understand some of those things if we're going to understand the letter to First and Second Corinthians. So honor and shame. The, the culture of the biblical world was an honor and shame culture, and this affected everything. Honor and shame in such cultures uh, as that aren't just matters of feeling embarrassed or feeling humiliated um, in, a, in a personal way. I mean, there is that, obviously, but it's way more public than that. Um, honor and shame has to do with reputation and status and value. It had to do with saving face versus losing face. And decisions were made for this very reason. Like, What would help you save face? What would cause you to lose face? What would bring honor or what would cause shame? And this was all very, very public in an honor and shame culture. And so increasing one's honor was the way to get ahead in society. And this affected business or finances. It affected your clients and your relationships. It affected marriage and morals and ethics and politics and even public acts. Everything was shaped by how can I increase my honor and thus gain face and get ahead? And because Corinth was, by ancient standards, a relatively new city that was booming and growing, that meant there were unusual opportunities for social advancement. And thus, self-promotion uh, was well-received. It was an important way of increasing your status and your honor. Um, Paul's actions in town were thus viewed at, by some as shameful and losing face, certainly beneath the honor of an ambassador of a king, like an apostle, right? If you are an ambassador for King Jesus, why are you so shameful? Not Why are you not one who promotes your honor in important ways? I mean, Paul worked with his hands. He lived poorly. He was treated publicly uh, in a shameful way by being drugged before the judgment seat of Gallio. He suffered um, hardship and difficulty, and all around, he seemed rather lowly. He refused to accept patronage and avoided the whole patronage system. I mean, if he had clout and authority, he should have had clients of his own, and he should have treated his the church as clients in the patronage system. We'll talk about that here in a second. And yet, even though there's all these things that were means of losing face, he claimed to be an apostle of the Messiah and have spiritual authority and deliver the most important news in the empire. And because they were a collectivist culture where family or group identity mattered more than individual identity, to be associated with the likes of Paul and even Jesus and his shameful crucifixion, well, all of that risk... Uh, lessening your honor and losing face and gaining shame, being treated with shame and being treated shamefully and being viewed shamefully. Well, that was like the worst thing imaginable. So honor and shame shape so much of what's happening in First and Second Corinthians. What about the patron-client system? Again, that's something not super familiar to us, but it is important for us at least to have a generic and general understanding of it. Um, 
The patron-client system was a formal arrangement where a wealthy person would take on clients and support them, and then the clients would work for or provide benefits for the patron. And typically, uh, or at least oftentimes, such relationships were referred to as friendships. Now, they weren't at all what we mean um, by the word friendship. As I noted, a patron was a wealthy person who agreed to support and provide for the clients in exchange for some sort of payback, and that payback is important. A client was thus at the mercy of his patron, and he did jobs for him, he provided service for him, or maybe goods for him, all while receiving payment or food from the patron. Uh, and a patron would have a register of clients that he met with regularly, and those clients were, in some ways, kind of indebted to him, indentured to him. This system was uh, also tied up with the honor and shame nature of the culture so that rivalry and competition was involved in your the patron-client system. Like, who was your patron? And who were your clients? How many clients did you have? And all of that led to competition and rivalry and trying to, you know, poach various clients from other people or trying to maybe arrange it so you could get a better patron and all of that. And so there was all this social competition and all of that. And it, I mean, it wasn't like a minor thing. It played out in some significant and serious ways. It played out in business, played out in politics, public works, right? If you could, if you could pay money for some sort of public works, then that could elevate your honor and your status in society and that would improve your your you know the number of clients you could get and all of that and sometimes it led to serious hostility between families because this family uh, was a, a competition and rivalry with this family for honor and status that's actually one of the reasons why Paul worked for himself rather than becoming a client of some wealthy patron in town. He did not want to participate in this system, and he did not want for the church to view itself as his clients and thus be indebted to him. He, he really wanted to subvert the whole system. One last little cultural value that's important to 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians as well is sexuality and marriage. And we'll talk more about this when we get to chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. But let me just point out that marriage was very different in their world than in our world, at least in the world I'm familiar with. Some parts of the world today, maybe some of you listening to this, um, marriage in your world is more like in the biblical world than what I'm used to. But in the Western world, the United States and Europe and places like that, um, Marriage is driven by romance and attraction, but in the ancient world, it was not the case. Marriage was typically arranged, and it was done so for matters of family honor. You married from a family that could bring greater honor, or at least preserve your family honor. Um, and sex within marriage was typically and primarily for the purpose of legitimate heirs and offspring. Sexual pleasure and sexual satisfaction, well, you typically looked elsewhere for that than within marriage in the, in the Roman world. This doesn't mean that love never happened or, or that there wasn't faithful relationships. It just wasn't the main point or it wasn't the starting point. Now, we'll talk more about that, as I said, when we get to chapter 7. But these values that were kind of deeply woven into just to the thought systems and the operating systems of first century culture and the culture of Corinth deeply shape what happens in uh, the church at Corinth and what's written in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And so we need to at least have some understanding of that. So to summarize, the 
letter of 1 Corinthians is written to a church in a major Roman city in the first century empire, a trade and travel city, and the church is being influenced by the culture around it more so than by the culture of the kingdom of Jesus. And Paul writes 1 Corinthians to, to address just a whole handful of problems that he's been informed about and become aware of that are plaguing this church that he hoped would be such an influential church with all the churches that he has started and all throughout the Greco-Roman world. Now, before we leave this backstory to 1 Corinthians, let me just give a quick overview of the content of 1 Corinthians. As noted above, there are two main sources of information that Paul had for the situation in the city and the church at Corinth. Chloe's people, 111, and a letter he received from the Corinthian church mentioned in chapter 7, verse 1. And many people organize the contents of the letter according to these two sources, and they'll organize it with chapters 1 through 6, responding to the report from Chloe's people, and then chapters 7 through 16, responding to questions from the letter of, that came from Corinth itself. Um, and while that's somewhat helpful, it doesn't really help us keep track of the content of the letter. Like, we don't know anything from that quick little overview uh, of what's going on in 1 through 6 and what's going on in chapters 7 through 16. Like, what are the topics? What is he addressing? And, and not only that, it's pretty clear that Paul actually intermixes material from both sources at times throughout the letter. So, chapter 1, verse 11 mentions the report from Chloe's people about divisions. So, we know there's a big chunk about divisions up front. Um, Chapter 5, verse 1 mentions some report, maybe from Chloe's people, maybe somewhere else, about immorality. Chapter 7, verse 1 uh, refers to the letter, the things about which you wrote. Um, and then you get sexuality and marriage, and you get meat offered to idols. But then chapter 11 seems to be about two topics related to corporate worship that he heard something about, not that they wrote about. So chapter 11, 18, he mentions things he heard about this. And so now we're back not to the letter, but the things he heard, maybe again from Chloe's people. Chapters 12 through 14, well, that comes back to spiritual gifts, and it maybe it seems like it comes from the letter they wrote. Uh, chapter 15 is another topic that they didn't write about. 15:12 seems to suggest it's something he heard about again, not from the letter. So it seems like he intermixes material from both the report from Chloe's people, maybe other reports, as well as the things from the letter. And so while there are two clearly two main sources of info about the church that Paul is interacting with, it's not clear that that's how Paul organizes his material. And again, organizing the material that way doesn't really help us get a sense for the flow of the letter. So I have chosen to organize the material more along the lines of main topics. Um, and in your mind, picture a chart. In fact, I'll put a chart inside the study hub that has a, a an overview of the book so that if you are uh, a member of the study hub, you can see this chart. But picture a chart with six columns. Um, and that six column represents the main topics that are dealt with in the book of 1 Corinthians. The first column is chapters 1 through 4, and it deals with divisions and wisdom and the cross, 1 through 4. The next column, the next topic, is chapters 5 through 7, and that deals with matters of sexuality and marriage. Um, it, it deals with this 
immoral brother that he wrote his initial letter about, and now he needs to follow up with that. It deals with some people who are visiting prostitutes, and he's got to deal with that. Then it deals with their question about sexuality and marriage in chapter 7, so 5 through 7, sexuality and marriage. And then chapters 8 through 10 deals with idol meat and Christian freedom. So that's the next column, column 3, idol meat and Christian freedom. How do we think about that? How should we respond to that? And then chapters 11 through 14 is all about corporate worship and a variety of topics related to corporate worship. And you could think about it as corporate worship and love. And the goal is to make sure love governs everything that happens inside of corporate worship. And so um, the matter of uh, head coverings is an issue of attire in corporate worship, and that should be driven by love. Um, the matter of the Lord's Supper, again, is an issue of love. And are you thinking of others rather than thinking of yourself? Spiritual gifts. Um, in the midst of that, he has the well-known love chapter in chapter 13. He wants love to, to actually guide how they handle spiritual gifts. And so chapters 11 through 14, the topic is corporate worship and love. Chapter 15 the fifth column is the resurrection and confusion and questions about the resurrection. And then the last thing, chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, is this project that Paul's working on, this offering that he's taking up for the saints back in Jerusalem and Judea. And so he gives some instructions on that. And so those are the six topics that uh, the book of 1 Corinthians deals with and the way it's organized. And so that's how I've arranged the book. I think that at least helps us see the various topics and help us get a handle on what's happening in the book of 1 Corinthians. All right, that's the backstory to 1 Corinthians. And beginning in our next recording, we will jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 1.